Please take your Bibles. Let's turn in the Old Testament to Isaiah 53, page 780 in the Pew Bibles, Isaiah 53. past number of years we've been going through this chapter near to the time of Good Friday. It ties in well with the sermon this morning. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 1. People of God, hear now the very words of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. For the transgressors. Let us turn in the New Testament. We'll turn first to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. Beginning at verse 9. This is found on page 1276 in the Pew Bibles. Hebrews 2 verse 9. We're going to end with Philippians because we'll come to that first in our sermon. Hebrews 2. We see him who for a 
little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Then let us read Philippians 3, beginning at verse 7, found on page 1249, Philippians 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philippians 3. After Paul recounts a lot of what he used to boast in and find pride in, he says this, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As far as the reading of God's holy word, congregation, the sacrifice of Jesus, which, which he himself offered on Golgotha's cross, it gives meaning to history. That's why the Son of God took upon himself our human nature, so he could suffer and die for the sins of his people, so he could deliver us, rescue us from the wrath of God that lay upon us because of our sin, so that by his resurrection from the dead, he had to die, the resurrection from the dead, he would usher in the reality of the new heavens and new earth, the kingdom of heaven and power. Over the past number of weeks, we've been considering just some of this, well, now in our confession of faith, we come to the event itself, the significance of it. We won't so much deal with the specifics of the event, although it's always before us, as we'll deal with, with why it matters so much, the importance, the benefits of Christ's suffering and death, the atonement. And that way we'll especially be focusing on the teaching of God's word that's brought out in the final paragraph of our confession of faith. Let's, let's turn to that in our Psalter hymnals to page 79, our confession of faith, the Belgian Confession, article 21, the satisfaction of Christ, our only high priest for us. Page 79. We believe that Jesus Christ is ordained with an oath to be an everlasting high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that he has presented himself in our behalf before the Father to appease his wrath by his full satisfaction, by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood to purge away our sins, as the prophets had foretold. For it is written, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and numbered with the transgressors, and condemned by Pontius Pilate as a malefactor, though he had first declared him innocent. Therefore he restored that which he took not away, and suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, as well in his body as in his soul, feeling the terrible punishment which our sins had merited insomuch that his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He called out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And has suffered all this for the remission of our sins. Wherefore we justly say with the Apostle Paul that we know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. We count all things but loss and refuse for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord in whose wounds we find all manner of consolation. Neither is it necessary to seek or invent any other means of being reconciled to God than this only sacrifice, once offered, by which he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is also the reason why he was called by the angel of God, Jesus. That is to say, Savior. Because he would save his people from their sins. Save his people, Savior. Christ's sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ alone matters. That's what we see here. First, we consider this is a saving sacrifice. Now, we read from Philippians 3. It's a wonderful passage. Philippians is filled with many memorable passages, isn't it? Well, this is one of them. And Paul tells us here, inspired by the Spirit, how he cast aside whatever gain, whatever value he had or thought he had at one time with his own works, his supposed righteousness, he cast them aside. Why? To gain Christ. That's how important the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Christ are. Here was Paul, a Pharisee, a successful Pharisee, as Pharisees go. According to outward works prescribed in the law of Moses, Paul, who at one time went by the name of Saul, he was blameless. He had everything going for him in terms of outward righteousness. He was pious and zealous. His family lineage, his activities, they were exemplary. Here was a pedigree, a resume. And all these, Paul, he, he tears it up. He says, I count everything, verse 8, as loss. He takes everything that he had had in the advantage column, the, the good column, and he moves it to disadvantage. He takes it from the plus column to the minus column in terms of financial bookkeeping. Imagine that if you kept the books, keeping them rightly, and a check comes in and, and you put it in the ledger for the positive. Well, no, instead, no, we'll put it in the negative. It just doesn't work. But it does spiritually. He didn't just drop it as though it never happened. He reversed its valuation. He counts it as rubbish. That's what he says in verse 8. Count them as rubbish. Why? He says that. In order that I may gain Christ. It's all because of the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because of the cross of Christ. Paul's own works did nothing for him, ultimately. They had no saving value. None. In fact, before Paul was brought to saving faith in Jesus, Paul was putting his trust in his works. He thought they brought him closer to God. Yet where did all of Paul's works get him? Or Saul's works, where did they get him? Not to heaven. Saul was still on earth. 
still had sin. He would still face death. That's what it is for you and me, for every human. No matter how outwardly good someone is, they are in the same condition spiritually in themselves as a mass murderer, as a rapist. Think of the worst sin you can think of, the most heinous sin. Apart from Christ, there's no difference between the criminal on death row and the most upstanding citizen around. No difference. Maybe there's one difference. Hopefully the criminal realizes, admits, he did something wrong. He's there for a reason. Admits that he deserves death. The upstanding citizen, though, would say, I don't deserve anything like death. I should be honored. Quite a difference from the criminal. What do we see all around us in the world today? The quest for honor, for being treated by God as we think we deserve. You can hear something like it from people who claim to be Christians. Some are so quick to say, well, they haven't done this or that heinous thing, this scandal. Some might say, I have no, no consciousness of sin. I don't commit conscious sin. That's honorable, isn't it? They think they deserve something better. Congregation. If anyone thinks he or she deserves something because of their upstanding behavior, they're lost. You are lost if you think that. You have the wrong value system. Such a person is valuing their own works, your works, my works. They matter not one good bit here. What matters? What does Paul say? Christ's sacrifice alone. Verse 8. These aren't my words. These are the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Why is it that Paul wants to gain Christ? Because Christ is the saving sacrifice. Being found in Christ means it's not our righteousness. It's his that God sees. A righteousness it doesn't come from our doing, from us. It's Christ's righteousness. A righteousness that comes through faith. He says that in verse 9. Which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. Twice there, same verse. Not our works, not our working. The righteousness of God. That's a righteousness that did not end in death, which is where all of our works, all of our so-called righteousness lead to death. It's a righteousness that what? Ends in, he brings it out here, right in resurrection, salvation to its fullest. Salvation that Paul, Saul, couldn't do. Saul's own works ended in death. He himself would die. Christ, children, you know he was raised. Raised from. That's astounding. Therefore, all those who, as Paul wrote, who know Christ, gain him, are found in him, believe in Jesus, your righteousness is the righteousness of God. That ends in resurrection. That's why the sacrifice of Christ alone matters. It didn't end in death, which everyone else's does. It ended in life, eternal life to all who believe. 
Let's be clear here, brothers and sisters. Jesus offered up himself as a sacrifice to God. He was accursed, even though he himself was perfectly righteous. All other sacrifices that men and women, boys and girls offer, fathers, husbands, those that you sacrifice for your family, mothers, those that you sacrifice for your family, they're good, but they don't even approach Christ. We aren't talking simply about animal sacrifices. Any sacrifice. Sometimes maybe we're tempted, do you know what I did for you? Don't you realize that? All things that we do for others or even for God doesn't approach what Christ did. And also, this is how we know that nothing even comes close to what Christ did on Golgotha's cross because only Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again. His resurrection validates his death, vindicates him. Not just that he was a victim, a victim of politics and circumstances, of envy, of the mob. Jesus' resurrection vindicates him as the Son of God who came into the world, who reconciled sinful man to God. It's proof that his sacrifice was the saving sacrifice. Praise Christ and praise God. All other things cast away. Count them as rubbish. Throw them away. Christ alone, sacrifice of Christ alone matters. It's the saving sacrifice. There's more as we come to in our second point. It's the consoling sacrifice. And we read from Philippians 3. We also read from Isaiah 53. We mentioned in the past number of years we've been going through that around the time of Lent. Listen again to just some of these these verses from Isaiah 53 of the blessings we receive, the consolation we receive from the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What griefs do you have? Sorrows do you have? Surely he has borne them. He has carried them. He was wounded for our transgressions was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. What iniquities do you have? What transgressions? What healing do you need? It's in Christ. He goes later. By his knowledge... Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? And he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 11. He bore the sin of many. What sin do you have? Christ bears it. He makes intercession for the transgressors. That's how he ends this chapter. Again and again in Isaiah 53, we read of the blessings, the consolation that comes to us with Christ's sacrifice. And that's what matters in life and in death. To have our transgressions, our iniquities punished in another. To have peace with God, to have healing, to be accounted righteous. That's what matters most. It's what the church proclaims concerning the good news of Jesus. The world cares nothing for that. 
Our sinful nature doesn't want these. Instead, what do we want by nature? What's proclaimed in the world around? Felt needs. Things we can sense, that we can feel. We want thrills, not boredom. Mom, I'm bored. We want thrills. Can Jesus provide that? My, my sports god can. My video game idol can. I want laughter in place of tears. My hormones and imbalances, I want them to even out. Can Jesus provide that? My prescription drugs can. My supplements can. I want to live the American dream. I want a cozy retirement. I want to have off on the weekends. I want to take a vacation trip now and then. I want to do what I want to do. Can Jesus do that? My 401k can. My, my job can. I want to feel a warm fuzzy inside. I want a soulmate. Can Jesus give me that? My boyfriend can. My girlfriend can. I want a sense of accomplishment. I want a sense of a, a job well done. Does Jesus give that? My hard work does. My effort can do that. I want to avoid the consequences of my actions and my words. Does your Jesus do that? My alcohol does. My drugs do. I can drown myself in them. I have a means of escape. I want to leave my mark on the world. I want to do something that makes history. Does Jesus do that for you? My activism does. My politics do. My fame does. We could go on and on and on. You see, these and more are what the world looks for. Let's be clear. Living as a Christian addresses all these in a fashion. But not as the world wants them addressed. Demands. The world seeks your best earthly life now. And there are some so-called Christian preachers who promise Jesus gives you that. That's not what we read. In Isaiah 53, that's not what we read in the Bible. Where are you pursuing a false savior, a false goal? Where are you pursuing something that's good, but it's twisted now? And it becomes a sinful goal. Examine your life. We all have them. Each one of us, we have idols of our hearts. Examine what is it you think you need. Where is that idol? Repent of that. Look again where the focus of our real need is. All consolation comes from Jesus restoring our relationship to God. To God. Now other relationships, human relationships... They might be restored, but there are some that become strained or broken because we confess the name of Christ. But, but the emphasis, the focus is on being reconciled to God. That's the, the audience, so to speak, the atonement. God is the one to whom Jesus offered himself with the atonement. God wasn't trying to convince us as though we just need to be convinced, and that's salvation, to convince us of his love. That out of his love for his people, God sent his son to satisfy justice on our behalf. The most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, it clearly speaks of God's love for sinners. The focus is on giving his son, why? Unto death, a sacrificial death, that eternal life might be had. The heart of our consolation with the atonement of Jesus is that he was willing to suffer for us. That he reconciled Believing sinners to God. That God is no longer angry with you. Christ took that upon himself. 
Now, we certainly see in the atonement of Christ God's love for us. But the primary purpose of the atonement wasn't just to say, hey, do you realize? And just, well, all you need is love. Hey, you realize God loves you because of this? Shape up now. No. The primary purpose was to satisfy God's wrath because of our sin. And Isaiah 53 brings that out again and again. And with this being the focus of the atonement, reconciling us to God, not meeting our felt needs, with that being the focus of the atonement, our greatest need is met. Reconciliation. And as a result, all of our needs, other needs are taken care of as well. Not always in this life perfectly. In fact, almost never perfectly in this life, but perfectly in the life to come. It's almost ironic that as we recognize that God is the one who is the focus of the atonement, we should have such consolation. When there's a false idea of the atonement, of salvation being pursued of felt needs, earthly ideas, there's really no consolation. Do things God's way and everything falls into place eventually. Do things man's way and nothing falls into place eventually or even now in this life. As we saw from Philippians 3, it's only with Christ, in Christ, that there's resurrection wholeness, righteousness, perfection. It's a package deal. It begins with the focus on sin and paying the penalty of sin. That's our primary consolation. This is a reason why, you know, maybe going through the Beatitudes in our Matthew series, or maybe you read in, in Luke 6, Matthew 5, Luke 6, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are, it goes through a lot of blessedness. They don't make sense from an earthly perspective. They don't. They don't fit. But when we see with the eyes of faith, according to God's measure of importance, we see the poor in spirit are blessed. Those who mourn are blessed. The meek, those who are persecuted. There's a blessing there. It doesn't fit the worldly perspective. And that is so pushing in upon us. Striving for felt needs, a sense of consolation. It fits with seeing with the eyes of faith to hear that and remember it. Because not only do we hear that message, but we go through hard times. Depression. Loneliness. Sorrow. Sickness. Death. Your relationship with Jesus isn't, it isn't verified, it isn't falsified by these in this life. If you have these things or if you don't have these things. We'll all go away in glory. But right now we live by faith. Hold fast to God's promise in Christ, whether you feel it or not. For the sake of Jesus, believer, God forgives all your sins. You're right with him. You're heir to everlasting life. Regardless of what you feel, good or bad, that's your comfort. That's your and my consolation. It's, it's sad that as God has blessed our society with so much wealth, comfort, earthly-wise, earthly enjoyment, so many neglect to thank God and neglect to seek ultimate blessing in Christ. Salvation, forgiveness, righteousness, eternal life. We see that. We can look back at some of us in our, our own lifetime. And just the measure of that is, is how Sunday is treated. The time... Many people would go to church, perhaps, not work, not work as much. It was more in our society, but now people pursue work, 
pursue fun, pursue this and that, pursue restaurants, whatever. And the church is empty in general. There's never full peace. There's never joy. Some might be content in some measure to muddle around in earthly things rather than the true consolation in Christ being found in. Let that not be said of you and me. So we need to go back to what God says. Say, Lord, give me a heart for this. Help me to see by faith. And we delight to hear it again and again. Even as our confession brings before us, the sacrifice of Christ alone matters. It's the consoling sacrifice. The saving sacrifice, consoling sacrifice. And then we come to the perfect sacrifice. So if, if the sacrifice of Christ alone is the saving sacrifice, and if Christ's sacrifice is the consoling sacrifice, both of those are true, then it follows it's the perfect sacrifice. And that we saw especially from our reading in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2. 2 verse 10 brings that before us. It is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering perfect through suffering. Now that doesn't mean Jesus had sin beforehand and his suffering purified him of that. No, no, no. He is the righteous one, perfectly pure, morally, always. But it means that through his sacrifice, his suffering, Jesus was made perfect with regard to his serving as our high priest. Before his suffering, Jesus was our high priest, but salvation had not yet been procured. Redemption had not yet been accomplished it was only with his suffering unto that sacrifice and death that Jesus is both the offerer and the offering, the priest and the sacrifice. He was made perfect. It's all there in Jesus. And since he alone is perfect, we don't need any other. There are no others. Animal sacrifices, they existed before, but they did nothing. That's why Jesus needed to be the atoning sacrifice. Jewish high priests, they existed before, but they did nothing ultimately. That's why Jesus needed to serve as our high priest. Religious works, they existed before, but they did nothing ultimately. That's why Jesus needed to perform what God willed. Moral works, good works, at least outwardly good, though all of ours were stained with sin. They existed before, but they did nothing ultimately. That's why Jesus had to perfectly obey. All of God's law be spotless, pure, and then offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice. The only one. And we believe that, we say that, but not everyone does. Now, maybe they say it, but then they go right on to deny it. For instance, if Jesus' one sacrifice on the cross was the perfect sacrifice, then he does not need to be re-sacrificed in the Roman Catholic Mass. It's abominable idolatry. Don't we confess that? Such re-sacrifice, they say, needs to happen or sins are not forgiven. That's a denial of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. We reject the Mass. There are others for whom Jesus' one sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice, but then, well, I don't I need some help? No. You don't need any help of saints, dead or alive. No pope. You don't need me. I'm not some spiritual guru. We need Christ. We don't 
need to pray to the dead or the living for their help. Jesus' one sacrifice is perfect. And that ties in with the previous point. For if Jesus' sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice, we need no other Savior. Human relationships, prescription drugs, money, politics, games, so forth. Of course, not all these are wrong in and of themselves. They can be used rightly. But not used rightly as Savior. How often, though, we're tempted to seek comfort in them. Some sort of eternal or spiritual or lasting or, ah, I found it, consolation. And in doing that, we take away from the perfection of Christ. The human heart, John Calvin, great theologian, said, we are idol factories. We're always sinfully seeking to get around, seeking salvation alone in Christ. Either setting aside Jesus entirely or more what's our temptation, seeking to add. We're tempted to that. And that call goes out, repent. Trust Jesus alone for time and eternity. And find how freeing it is in this life. (coughs) Living by faith in Jesus means we still take our medicine. We still go through physical therapy. We still do hard work. We still relate with others and strive for that. We still work diligently in life and be prudent spenders and savers. But Jesus sets us free from bondage to all these things. You can use them now as God intends. And since your hope is not rooted in them, but in Christ, when they fail, and they will fail, you're not crushed. You can deal with it. The world can't. It has its many idols, and all those idols disappoint. They always will. Those saviors don't really save. They can't. Christ alone saves. But they give that message. See what that message is saying. Say, no, that's wrong. You have a message of peace and joy, of truth to tell to the world, to tell to your kids, to live out to your kids. Parents, how are you doing that? What can they see who your idol, your savior is? You can catch it. In times when you're annoyed, in times when you're tempted to frustration, in times when you're tired. You've got that message. Now again, not one of us does it perfectly. And parents, that too is where you can instruct your children. And you can show, see how much I need a Savior? I'm not even dealing with this rightly. Those are wonderful teaching discipleship opportunities. They don't have to see you perfect. They can see you looking to the perfect Savior. We point to Christ. God blesses that. He sees it real in your lives. And when your child or when your neighbor or your coworker or your friend, they asked you, why don't you smoke marijuana? Why don't you go party on the weekends? Why why do you leave your work at a reasonable time to go home with your family to, to lead them in worship? Why don't you hop from one relationship to another relationship, this, that, the other thing? You've been given an opportunity to evangelize. Take it. Tell them, life isn't found in those things. Life, meaning, joy, hope. However they speak it and hear it, whatever words the world uses, they're found in Christ. Tell them what Jesus has done. His life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. 
is rescue. And call them to believe and to turn from those other things and pray with them, pray for them. The world has nothing like that. It has only emptiness, ultimately despair. You believe, you have hope, you have life. By God's grace, be used by God for that, to glorify him, to point others to Christ and his sacrifice alone. It, sacrifice of Christ alone matters. And may God receive all the praise. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving your Son our only Savior. We confess we are tempted to seek some form of blessedness, salvation outside Christ. We're tempted to that. Our sins show it. Forgive us, Lord. Strengthen our faith. May we live by faith always and not by sight, holding fast to Christ, glorying in him for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.